Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 2. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along, please do so. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things are right to you so, you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the whole world. Amen. Study in First John has been fascinating to me. I've never spent this much time in this short letter, and it's just amazing how much comes out of it as you delve deeper into it. My dear children, John started there in chapter 2, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice, or he is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. As we look at the certainties that John lays out in this epistle to the churches, we come to the certainty of an advocate. The certainty of an advocate. Jesus Christ is in, introduced here to us as our advocate. The Greek word is parakletos. You may have re remember that uh, name, the one who comes alongside to, hel to help. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus told his disciples that he had to go away, but he would send a comforter, a parakletos, the referring to the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside to help, to comfort, to encourage. Parakletos, however, can also mean the one who comes alongside to defend another. And that's how it's used here for Jesus Christ. He is our divine defense attorney, our advocate before God. Now, I'm sure there are probably a few lawyers that have probably made their way to heaven. However, there's only one practicing lawyer in heaven, and he is a defender of all who belong to his kingdom. But if anybody does sin, John said, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The language that's used here is legal language. It presumes a courtroom setting in which sinners are accused before God, the divine judge. This is God's hall of justice. The accused sinner comes before the bar of God, and Jesus Christ comes as the sinner's defense attorney. This in introduces us to a concept of the, uh, a whole matter of salvation that's very important and very basic, a concept that we don't often consider. And it is this, that salvation is a matter of divine justice. 
Salvation, in a certain sense, is an operation of law before the holy judge of all. Usually when we think about salvation, we think of it as an operation of divine grace. We think of it of, uh, as an operation of divine mercy. And when the gospel is presented, we usually talk about God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and, and His com- compassion, and rightfully so. But here in our passage, John presents a very necessary element of justice that needs to be dealt with. And we find that salvation is a matter of divine justice just as much as it is a matter of divine mercy and grace. Since God cannot ever disregard His own perfect law and justice. Some have wrongly thought that God's love somehow overpowers His justice. It's not true. Both love and justice are equally satisfied in God's salvation plan. Salvation is a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of advocacy that we're going to see here this morning. Now, in this epistle, John is laying down absolute standards all the way through this epistle. Standards by which we can define, determine, and designate a true Christian. The test that he gives by which we are to measure ourselves are very, very rigid tests. And what John is going to lay out would be absolutely overwhelming to us if it were not for the initial emphasis that John has put in the matter of forgiveness and advocacy. That's why he starts, for example, in 1 John chapter 9, which was read this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Then here in verse 1, he says, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate before the Father. And a statement in, in verse 12 where he says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So he's laying all that out as an encouragement first to us. Those are very important statements to keep in mind because without them, this letter would be overwhelming for us because John is so absolute. Let me show you what I mean. In in chapter 1, verse 5, we looked at this last week. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. Christians, John, Christians, John says, don't walk in darkness. They don't live their lives conducting themselves in the way the dark world does. In chapter 1, verse 9, Christians confess their sins. We talked about that. In other words, they're characterized as those who walk in the light and not in the darkness, which means that they manifest the life of God in their conduct and they are quick to confess their sins on a regular basis. In chapter 2, starting with verse 3, we'll be looking at this next week. We know that we have come to know Him if, <coughs> excuse me, if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. John, John hits it right on the head here. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. In fact, he says in verse 11, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because a darkness has blinded them. Many church people today 
as in John's day, don't get along. Ever notice that? They don't like someone because of their personality, because of a perceived offense that they've decided to be offended about, and then they decide to leave the church. It happens in every church. Where's Christ's love that John is talking about here? Where's Christ's forgiveness? Where's Christ's uh, humility and unity? In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We, we talked about a little bit about that in our spiritual growth class this morning. There's a very, uh, the, these are very black and white statements that John makes. Chapter 3, verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. In the next verse, verse 7, he makes it stronger. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Wow. These are strong statements. Christians don't walk in darkness. Christians confess their sins regularly. They obey God's command. They, they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't love the world. They practice righteousness. They don't practice sin. These are all tests that John lays out of what a true Christian is. And the question of the morning, how do we measure up? <laughs> Take a personal inventory. How do we measure up? with these tests that John lays out. And the purpose of all these in chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, you might say, I, I might as well give up right now. It's not even worth it. I, don't, I can't measure up. I don't qualify. My love is not perfect. My obedience is not perfect. I'm not sinless. I'm not unattracted to the world. I'm not free from all sins. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. I just don't pass the tests. It seems as though this is a call for sinlessness, for perfection. It's almost as if the only way you could pass the test, the only way you can be certain of your salvation, would be if you were absolutely as perfect as Jesus Christ all the time. And once saved, you're expected to be perfect the rest of your life, right? Except for one statement. And that's a statement that's before us here in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Whew, boy, I'm so glad that verse is there. You can take a deep sigh of relief. Don't despair. We need that verse. It's huge. The statement is absolutely crucial it shuts off the panic that might be arising in us. <clears throat> it's divine relief from the rigidity and absolutes of God's standards that John lays out through the rest of his epistle. Not only is it a personal relief, but it is, as one commentary put it, the doctrinal Mount Everest of the whole epistle, that verse. It is the summit of truth because it is a pinnacle of the redemptive plan of God. 
You see, it's not just theology, but it's a source of practical joy for us. Remember John wrote, uh, we looked at it last, last week, or the first week, I guess, back in chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write that our joy may be made complete. That's part of the reason why he's writing this letter. This epistle is not supposed to be an epistle of despair and worry and, and fear. It's supposed, to be, it's supposed to set the standard where the standard needs to be. It's supposed to call you to that standard of holiness and righteousness and love, but at the same time, give you complete joy. You see, John sets the standard in the first part of verse 1 when he says, My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. That's the standard of the Christian life. High standard. But that is the standard. That's God's expectation. It has to be because why? He is holy. He is holy. But then the second part of the verse gives us hope. But if anyone does sin, anybody here sins from time to time? But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with a father. And that correlates back to chapter 1, verse 9, that we looked at last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He brings us back to that state of holiness. Now, the verb to sin that John uses is the most common New Testament word for sin. It means to miss the mark. God sets the mark, he sets a bar, <laughs> and we miss it. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. It's a word to violate God's standard used all through the New Testament to describe sin. But if anybody does sin... I'm not going to bore you with the nuance of the classes of conditional statements in Greek. But this phrase is what they call a third-class conditional with a subjunctive. And all that means is that the word if carries with it the possibility. Kind of like saying, if and when you sin... <laughs> You see, John knows there's a high probability that we will sin. Now remember, he's writing to believers. We talked about that last week. He's writing to the believers in churches, and here in verse 1, he is re reiterating that fact. My dear children, okay, the family of God, my dear children, we, including himself, we have an advocate. We here refers to true believers. Not only do we as believers have an advocate in Christ, but verse 2 says he is the atoning sacrifice. He is a propitiation for our sins. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And here then comes the key to the doctrine of salvation. If we sin, and we will, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney with the Father. And it's none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous one. <clears throat> now, the imagery is fascinating here. It's the image of a court of divine justice. God is on the bench. His responsibility is uphold the perfection of his holy law. He is just and he will render justice. We are the indicted sinner in the courtroom. Jesus Christ is a defense lawyer who pleads a case on our behalf before the bar of holy God. You see, our salvation is not just an act of grace, it's not just an act of love and mercy, but it's an act of justice which 
means that God's grace did not overpower the law. His mercy didn't overwhelm his wrath. His compassion didn't conquer his justice, but instead they all worked together in perfect harmony. Our salvation is not only an act of grace, it's also an act of justice. The New Testament makes it clear and unmistakable that justice will not be ignored. Justice was not compromised. Justice was not set aside in our salvation. But justice was actually met. Justice was satisfied. So that salvation is a perfect action of divine justice and grace. How does that work? Because those two words seem to be opposites, don't they? Justice and grace, or justice and mercy. Justice means someone has to pay for their wrongdoing. In this case, the wages of sin is death. That's justice. But grace and mercy are the opposite, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. They, They seem to contradict each other. If God is truly just, how is that even possible? All through Scripture, God does not tolerate sin. Believers so often just kind of negate sin. Ah, sin's not that big of a deal. Folks, sin's a big deal. Back in Exodus chapter 34, and he passes in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sounds great, right? We love hearing that. But then he writes, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. He takes sin very seriously. There's not a trade-off here. There is no sacrifice of God's justice in order to act in mercy. In Numbers chapter 14, the Lord Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Proverbs chapter 11, the evil man will not go unpunished. Nahum chapter 1, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Talk about certainties. And on and on Scripture goes, God is just. Justice cries for retribution. Every sin will be accounted for. Every sin is on the record. Every sin demands punishment. No sin ever committed by anybody, any time, known or unknown, will go unpunished. And God's mercy is not some mitigating sentimentality that softens or weakens or replaces His justice. If justice is to be satisfied, then it must punish sin. And we know what the price of sin is. The wages of sin is death. New Testament. There never will be mercy without justice. Justice is not set aside. But that's what John is dealing with here in our text this morning. And it's fascinating. If anyone sins, John could have said, he pays. He pays with death because that's consistent with God's justice. That's what the wages of sin is. But instead, he says, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Remember, Jesus came to save sinners and give them life. But sin demands death. How does that work? We're going to see how God will save sinners in a way that satisfies his mercy and at the same time satisfies his justice. 
So let's go into the courtroom here and see how this plays out. First of all, let's look at the indictment. The indictment. If anyone sins, and they will, John says, because we all do, if we don't say we sin, we lie, right? Chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 10, if we say we don't, then we make God a liar, and that's, that can't be true. We sin, and we are all in the courtroom guilty. The indictment is clear. The judge knows we're guilty. We know we're guilty. And even more amazingly, our advocate, our defense lawyer knows we're guilty. How do you plead? We've got to plead guilty. Everybody knows it. Now, in the courtroom, there is also a prosecutor. Though he's not mentioned here in the text, there is a prosecutor who knows about our sin as well. And he's eager to force the case against us before the divine judge. And what he wants to do is come to the bar, point to the indictment and the record of our sins, which is complete, and demand that God be true to his own justice and damn us to hell. That's the verdict he's looking for. Who is the prosecutor? Well, we know who that is. He's a serpent from Genesis chapter 3. He's a devil. It's Satan himself, whom Revelation chapter 12 describes as the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. He's a busy prosecutor. He's not omnipresent, but he's fast. (laughs) Probably moving where he wants to, when he wants to, in a moment. But Scripture tells that he's moving around like a roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. But a lot of his scheming of movements are all before the throne of God. Scripture says he's there day and night bringing accusations against us. Satan means adversary. He's a hateful prosecutor who cries out to God relentlessly that if God is just, if God is righteous, if God is holy, then he must punish those who have such a list of sins. And the prosecutor is absolutely right. He is absolutely right. We are guilty. We have done the crime. And we deserve the punishment. That's why we're in the courtroom in the first place. The indictment is clear. Everyone knows our guilt. Then we meet the judge. Who's the judge? Well, back to verse 1 of chapter 2 there of John, 1 John. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. With the Father. The Father is the judge. Our advocate goes before the Father and defends us before God Almighty. This is not a jury trial, and I praise the Lord that it's not a jury trial tried by our peers, right? This is a trial before an absolutely holy judge who will only do what is right. And though he is an absolutely holy and just God, he is also compassionate and loving and forgiving by nature. And he is a Savior. But at the same time, God is a formidable judge. In fact, he wrote the law. His responsibility as a judge is not only to interpret the law that he wrote, but then to apply that law. 
And so as we go before him, we're glad for his justice. At the same time, it could be fearful. We can be afraid of his justice. Why? Because in actuality, it is his very justice from which we must be saved. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul delivered a message that shook a lot of people up. The message was called, Saved from What? Saved from what? And in it, he asked this. Everybody talks about being saved, but saved from what? From unsuccessful living? Saved from lack of fulfillment? Saved from personal pain? Saved from trouble? Saved from meaninglessness? Saved from emptiness? Saved from lovelessness? Saved from fear? Saved from poverty? Saved from what? Saved from sin? Saved from hell? And then he gave the profound answer. He says, no, we're saved from God. Everybody listening, we're stunned. Saved from God. But he was right. Have you ever thought about that? You see, ultimately, we need to be saved from the judge because he has the power and the right to condemn us to hell. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not be afraid of those things that kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is the one that can do that? That's God. That's the judge. In Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus gives a warning, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Who has that power and authority to cast sinners into hell? It's God and Him alone. So, saved from what? Saved from God. Saved from the judge. People don't like thinking about that, but when you study the Scriptures, you hear what a just God will do to sinners. It's pretty frightening. Listen to Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. I can't wait for the day of the Lord. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Zephaniah chapter 1, the day of the Lord standing before the judgment seat. It's going to be terrifying. Listen, a day of destruction, he says. And desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, where nothing will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished in everlasting destruction and shut, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Wow. Not only is God the judge, He is a jury, He's a sentencer, He's the executioner. And somehow we have to be saved from his holy justice. And so God, in saving us, saves us from himself. Now, here we stand before this awesome and terrifying judge. The indictment is clear. He knows the record of our sin perfectly. We know we are sinners the enemy, the adversary, the prosecutor knows we're sinners and reminds God that in order, to, in order to bring out the judgment that he's looking for, God himself has every right to destroy us for the violation of his holy law. 
And so we come to our defender. Come to our defender. Who is it? John says we have an advocate. We have the parakletos. We have a divine defense attorney. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad we have him. When you go before the holy bar of God, not only do we want the very best judge, but we want the very best attorney to argue our case before the judge. We couldn't have a better one. You know why? He's never lost a case. He has never lost a case. Not only that, but the judge is his father, and they know each other well. And not only that, but the judge is what? Our father. The judge is our father, and he is sympathetic to his own children. And not only that, our attorney knows and understands our weaknesses because he became one of us. You know, some people think that Christ is for us, God is against us, and Christ works at trying to convince God. But listen to this. God appointed our defender. God chose a court-appointed public defender for us. And he chose the best one in the universe, the, the only one who could successfully argue our case. And he did that because God, by nature, is merciful as well as just. He is compassionate. Listen to Micah as he waxes eloquent about God. In Micah chapter 7, we read, Who is God? Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is before Christ came on the scene. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only advocate. As well as just, our judge is also merciful, and so he's ready and wants to forgive. And so he appoints for us a perfect advocate, the perfect defense attorney. We said our prosecutor is relentless, Satan, relentless day and night. But then so is our defender. So is our defender. Hebrews chapter 7.25 tells us he always lives to intercede for us. Constant. He defends us even more relentlessly than Satan. But listen, before he will accept you as a client, you have to confess your guilt. He only defends those who confess their guilt. He only defends those who've reached out to him as Savior. Though he is perfectly sinless, he defends sinners. That's grace. And our advocate, our defense attorney, again, never loses a case. He, he's always, he always gets mercy. He always gets forgiveness. He always gets an acquittal because of his amazing advocacy. You see, the verdict is already given. The verdict is already, where do we find that verdict? Back there in verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, what happens? He is faithful. And he is just, and he will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is both faithful and just to do that. But how is that possible? How can he be an effective defender of those who are still sinning, of those who confess to being guilty of breaking God's law? It's because our defense attorney is more than a defender. 
Our defense attorney is more than a defender. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation of our sins. The NIV, NIV says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I think that's a little bit unfortunate because uh, the atoning sacrifice really describes the how and not the what. The Greek word used for propitiation is hilasmos. Hilasmos. It, it simply means an appeasement. We understand that word. We understand what it is for someone to be angry and the need to appease them. Another word you could use is the word to satisfy. Somebody has established a standard and requires that you satisfy that standard. Or somebody's established a law and, and a punishment and determines that that punishment must be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. He is a propitiation for our sins. He is our satisfaction. He is our appeasement. He provided satisfaction for the justice of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to do what? To be sin for us, so that in him we might uh, become the righteousness of God. Peter understood that as well when he quotes Psalm uh, 53. He himself bore our sins, he quotes. And then he adds, in his body on the cross, that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And he goes back to uh, uh, Psalm 53. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's the whole point of 1 John. That's the whole point of 1 John. Jesus died for you and me, paid the ultimate sacrifice for all the sins of the world. He did it, as he says in verse 1, so that you will not sin. But instead, we are to live for righteousness. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Hebrew word translated as will here, the Lord's will, is interesting. Its primary meaning is actually to delight in something, to be pleased with with. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 1, the same word, it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. In 1 Samuel 18, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Nehemiah 2, it pleased the king to send me. Same word. Have you ever finally found a solution to, to an issue or a problem that you're trying to figure out, and all of a sudden you find the solution? This is great, and you are delighted, right? And you're so delighted with, with finding that solution that you put it into action, and you do it. That's what's happening in this verse. God found a solution to a seemingly impossible problem. So he was delighted to carry it out. The Lord was pleased to crush him and cause him to suffer. Ever thought of that verse? What's going on there? That doesn't sound right at all. Listen carefully. It didn't please God to hurt his son. No father would delight in that. He was, however, pleased and delighted with what he decided to do with the solution. Why? Why was he so delighted with that solution? Because God so loved the world. You see, there was only one solution. Nothing else would have done it. And God found that solution. Why was that necessary? Because of sin. 
We can't get around it when we read John 3.36, which says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That seems harsh. But if you reject Christ, then the only way that God can be propitiated, can be satisfied, can be appeased for your sin is to punish you eternally. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.18, we were under God's wrath. Listen, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God forever. It's redundant. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Christ has come, why? To deliver us from the wrath to come. Why? Because he's the righteous one. That's what John tells us. He is the righteous one, having no sin of his own, not having had to pay for any of his own sins. He's a perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot. He is a perfect sacrifice. He is the one, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He himself is the propitiation. You know, I, I love the way that he wrote that. He doesn't make propitiation. He is. <laughs> He is the propitiation. He doesn't find a solution. He is the solution. He couldn't be our advocate, but he wasn't our solution. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no what? No condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So does that mean that we can sin now with impunity? Because there's no condemnation. All right, let's go out and have some good times. Is that what the phrase freedom in Christ means? We're free to sin? Paul has a very strong response to that kind of attitude. Romans 6.1, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means! Exclamation mark. Are you nuts? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in, in it? How can we live in it any longer? And that's exactly what John is saying here in his epistle. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's saying, stop it. Stop it. You don't have to. We have victory over sin. Then he quickly adds, when you do mess up once in a while, don't be afraid that God stopped loving you. Don't be afraid that you've lost your salvation because we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation. He is the solution. He is the remedy. He is the satisfaction for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's done it for everybody that come to Christ. I'm so glad we've got a divine advocate. He stands there before the Father, and as each accusation and each charge is leveled by the enemy, Jesus is there and says, I've taken care of that. I've taken care of that. I've taken care of that one too. Don't sin. When you do, 
Christ has forgiven us. Bring us back to that holy standard. That's where we are to live our lives, a life of righteousness, not a life of sin. It's possible because of the victory we have in Christ. Father, this morning, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for an advocate who is also our solution, who is also our appeasement, who is also our remedy for eternal death. We don't have to be worried about that. At the same time, Father, I pray that you impress it upon our hearts, press it upon our very souls, that you expect us to live that life of righteousness. That's your standard. I pray, though, that our hearts and our minds be open to your Holy Spirit so when we do stray, when we do mess up, when we fail, when we fall, when we sin, that we would hear the conviction from the Holy Spirit and we would be quick to confess it. And as we confess it on a regular basis, you are faithful, you are just, and you bring us back to that standard of holiness, purifying us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you are our defender. In Jesus' name, amen.